Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Benjamin Humphrey. Benjamin is the co-founder and CEO of Dovetail, the elegant, fast-growing, and cloud-based research repository, collaboration, and analysis platform. In early 2020, after three years of bootstrapping, that's code for blood, sweat, and tears, the company raised $4 million in a seed round led by Australia's Blackbird Ventures with US-based Felicis Ventures and the co-founder of Culture Amp, Didier Alzinger, also participating. Before founding Dovetail, Benjamin was a lead designer at Atlassian, Australia's most well-known and most successful software-as-a-service company. There, he was responsible for designing Atlassian's cloud platform, which included components across services such as Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket. Benjamin also invested time at Avos, a company led by YouTube co-founders Chad Hurley and Steve Chen, moving from Dunedin in New Zealand to San Mateo, California, to be the product designer on social bookmarking platform Delicious. Working closely with Chad and Steve, Benjamin planned, executed, and led a complete re-architecture of the delicious front-end experience. But back to Dovetail, it's a great product, and from my research for today's conversation, I understand that Benjamin has some big goals for it. So I'm looking forward to learning more about those goals and the person who's responsible for achieving them. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Brendan. It's great to have you here. And one of the great things about interviewing interesting people is, well, they're interesting. And one of the interesting things I realized about you when I was researching for today was that you received your private pilot's license in your last year of high school. How <laughs> did flying become part of your life? Yeah, um, there's this thing about pilots. It's like, there's a joke, which is how do you know someone's a pilot? And they, they tell you. So it's um, <laughs> try not to bring it up too often, but uh so when i was in school i always wanted to be a pilot um originally wanted to join the new zealand air force actually mm. um and this is back in the early 2000s and uh the air force had these fighter jets called skyhawks which was interesting and i kind of like the idea of flying one of those um so i was into aviation um and went to air shows and things like that Mm -hmm. and uh used to go out and sit at christchurch airport uh if you're familiar with christchurch you know that you can kind of go to the airport and sit behind the kind of fence and, and watch the planes taking off and people have binoculars and things like that so go and spot planes mm -hmm. um so i wanted to get my license and i thought that that would help me kind of with my application into the air force if i already had my uh pilot's license so at at the age of 14 or 15 um you know, I was kind of getting involved with the Aero Club at, at, at Canterbury Aero Club in Christchurch. And, and I put in my, they had a scholarship every year where they, they had for kids wanting to get their license and they would uh, give you, I think it was $2,000 towards your license. And mm -hmm. back then, I think it would cost something between six to $10,000 to get your license. So it's not, you know, cheap for a 14, 15 year old. So scholarship obviously helps. And, uh, so it was like a written kind of essay that you had to, to, to say why you wanted to get your license and everything. And so as a 14-year-old kid, I wrote this essay and then I submitted it to the Aero Club and they uh, chose me to be the scholarship uh, winner, which was fortunate. 
And uh, so then for the next What did you tell them? What did you have in the letter that uh, that made it so good? uh, So we were Holigo now, but um, I think I just sort of, you know, talked about why I I loved aviation and and Mm. sort of, I guess, tried to demonstrate some of my knowledge about aviation and, Mm. you know, some of the studying I had been doing and and all this sort of stuff and my passion for it. Mm. Um, I can't quite remember what the criteria was, like what they were actually looking for, but evidently whatever I wrote was good enough and got my license when I was 15 or 16 before I had my full driver's license. Um, so <laughs> yeah. And then uh, what happened during that time? Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I worked hard for it, I guess, but, uh, I was very fortunate to get that scholarship and, and had some support from, uh, mum. So, uh, that was cool. And yeah, but during that time, the, the New Zealand air force, they got rid of the Skyhawks and, uh, I also kind of learned in high school that I was not very good with being told what to do. Um, as I got older, I sort of developed a bit of a rebellious streak and I didn't really like um, being being told what to do by teachers and almost actually dropped out of high school. And, and maths and physics were not my strength either, which is an important part of uh, uh, jo- joining the Air Force as a pilot. So I kind of realized, you know, maybe this is not really for me. Um, salary is also pretty low. So I was like... <laughs> you know, this whole computer thing seems, seems better. So I, I did that and, and I let my license lapse. Like I kind of, the thing with licenses, you have a feet life, but you have to stay current. And so mm. I uh, went to university, couldn't afford to stay current, sort of forgot about it. And then a couple of years ago, went back and got recurrent. Um, what prompted you to go failed. back? Uh, so this was in 2017 and I was taking a bit of time off from Atlassian, uh, mm. three months to, think about what I wanted to do um, and decide if I wanted to sort of try this startup thing or uh, stay at Atlassian. And Mm. I, um, so I took three months off, went back to New Zealand uh, and decided I'd do some more flying. It was reasonably cathartic, although I had to reset law, um, which, because it had been 10 years since I'd last flown and the laws had changed. Uh, Mm. So I did a lot of studying for that. And, uh, yeah, just kind of, I don't know, just took a break from software and a break from work and, uh, did something else and that was fun. But, um, you know, flying is always a hobby, I think for me. Um, so yeah. Any ambitions to fly your own corporate jet one day? Not at all. No, (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, there's a lot. Yeah. I'd have to do a lot more training. I think to be able to fly a corporate jet. (laughs) Uh, Well, we'll see what the future holds. eh? Yeah. So something else I noticed that was interesting about you is that even before you founded Dovetail and left the day job behind, which we'll come to soon, you had a track record of starting things. And we kind of touched on that with your journey into aviation. That was obviously quite a bold thing for a teenager to do. But you also started something called UX Design Day and mm-hmm. an open source project called the Ubuntu Manual. Where yeah. does this need to start things and, and change the status quo come from? <laughs> You're pulling up some old projects there. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. Like, I think that I've always been interested in solving problems and, and uh, just kind of building stuff and, and making things. Uh, I've, I've never really been a particularly good uh, programmer, but mm. I feel like I'm, you know, okay at sort of trying to solve problems and, and sort of the entrepreneurial side, I suppose. Um, and it's, it's really, it's been something that I've done since I was a kid. I used to, uh, sell a lot of stuff on trade me in high school, which is, uh, sort of eBay in New Zealand. 
Uh, well, you would know that, but uh, Australian people don't know what the hell Trade Me is. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd sort of scrounge around the house and sell stuff on Trade Me, and I made quite a lot of money actually as a kid selling things on Trade Me. And occasionally I would sell something that Mum actually wanted me to uh, to keep, uh, oh, so that would get get me in a bit of trouble. But uh, so I sort of, and you know, kind of. Um, would break things into smaller pieces and sell them as individual pieces because they're worth more than the, than the sum. Uh, so I think I'd always kind of had a knack for, you know, I'd always make sure I took nice photographs of, with a nice camera and stuff and so kind of advertise it because I knew that that would fetch more uh, mm. if it had good photographs. So I feel like I always had a knack for trying to make things and sell stuff. And so I thought, you know, I saw these opportunities. I joined this ubuntu project and and uh i can't quite remember how i stumbled upon this community that was you know trying to make some training material for um ubuntu and it kind of became this thing where we you know it was a really popular operating system in emerging countries uh because it was free obviously and and uh flexible and and had a lot of translation but the training material was all in english and so we kind of developed this um document that we could evolve and translate and that was just this project that i was working on but uh just kind of interested i guess in trying to get out of i'd always wanted to get out of new zealand as well i felt like it was christchurch especially i felt kind of constrained i you know traveled a wee bit and and was mm-hmm. lucky enough actually to go to belgium to the ubuntu developer summit mm-hmm. and uh kind of was exposed to this whole world of people but um one of the cool things is that when I was growing up, my mum had this bed and breakfast in Christchurch and we were one of the, um, I guess, providers for the US Antarctic program. So mm-hmm. uh, some people might know that the US flies through Christchurch. They use it as kind of a base of operations to go down to their base at McMurdo in Antarctica. And they have a few accommodation providers and we were one of them. So every year we would have these kind of scientists and these uh, physicists and astronomers staying uh, from the US, from Germany, uh, all over the place. And they would stay with us. And often they would be delayed by multiple weeks because of the weather in Antarctica meant that they couldn't fly down there. And some of them were going down to the South Pole to stay there for the whole of winter. And uh, so I'd start talking to them about all sorts of things. And they'd show me kind of like stuff, sciencey stuff. You know, some of them are working on... Uh, maintaining telescopes others were digging uh, drilling massive holes in the ice and uh and going diving underneath the ice sheet to find uh really old um, biological samples um a friend of mine he was doing a phd in uh in geophysics and he would from university of texas uh, at austin and he would fly around in antarctica on a dc-3 which is an old world war ii aircraft equipped with a gravity meter and that fly sort of constantly across the ice at a certain altitude and that actually measure the gravity expensive piece of equipment and that would tell them the thickness of the ice and it was a way to sort of survey for climate change over the years so mm. i was kind of exposed to all these interesting people that you just don't get to meet in christchurch um <laughs> and i guess that kind of piqued my curiosity and i got involved with these other things that were international i suppose mm. um and Ubuntu was one of those. So looking back on those experiences, those opportunities that you took and the things that you did there, how have they impacted your career path or how have they led you to where you find yourself today? 
Well, I made a few decisions that I guess were at the time not particularly well received by my family. So (laughs) I uh, started doing computer science and uh, design at the Mm. University of Otago in Dunedin. And then about a year and a half into it, I decided this wasn't for me um, and dropped out. And so my mum was very, very upset. and I, you know, a couple of things. One was that I didn't really like that style of learning. I, I really struggled to kind of be taught as in like be told in a lecture. Like I just really struggled to pay attention in lectures and things like this. And I really liked the practical side of it, the labs and just getting in and doing stuff. That was one reason. I also felt that the computer science was missing this opportunity with the web uh, back mm-hmm. in 2008, 2009. I could sort of see that web applications were kind of going to be the thing and uh, Facebook was kind of growing and all this sort of stuff. Yet we were still learning how to build these little Java applets and and write (laughs) Python. And I kind of felt like the design side was missing. And so that was another thing. And then the other thing is that I got involved in in kind of freelancing, doing some design work and and just sort of started making a bit of money. And of course, when you're a student, uh, it's very appealing to not be poor anymore mm. and actually um, work on uh, for a, a, a company that's make, paying you something. So I decided to drop out of university and I think that that was uh, a tough decision but the right decision because it, it, it meant that I could get into all these sorts of things, these projects, the Ubuntu stuff, the, um, you know, working for uh, Loop, which was the company that Arvos acquired and it was all just kind of fortuitous there's a lot of luck, luck involved though um the timing was kind of good uh and so yeah i think that making a couple of good decisions and just trying to understand i guess how i wanted to learn and and, and apply myself and i realized early on that it was about just getting stuck in and doing stuff and learning that way uh, mm-hmm. rather than persisting with a sort of learning style that i didn't really work for me so has your mum forgiven you um, I don't, I honestly don't think so. No, <laughs> I think she'd still like me to go back to university and get my degree. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> well, look, I watched your interview that you recently gave with, uh, give it enough show, Steve Grace show. You yep. spoke about in that your need, and this is quite common in entrepreneurs that rather hard charging types are quite hard on themselves. You spoke about your need to be the best at what you do and mm. how you've felt pursuing that in your life. You said, and I'm gonna quote you now, I struggle with this, it's never good enough, so I'm always unhappy, which kind of sucks. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a bit of a battle, and like I said, this isn't uncommon in entrepreneurs with perfectionism. Yeah, uh, definitely. So the most recent story I have about this is we uh, just painted our house and um, we started doing it ourselves. My girlfriend and I, we painted the front entranceway in the front room. The house needs to be painted. It was, we bought it off a family who had a couple of small kids and the walls were just full of marks and dents and things like that. So, um, so we started painting this house and it was actually really cathartic because I could do it myself and knew that I was going to do a really good job and sweat the details and everything. But then we realized it took freaking ages. We did it over Christmas <laughs> and uh, it took us like a week to paint two rooms. And we didn't even do the, the skirting board or the windows or anything. We just did the walls. Um, 
it's your so, girlfriend a bit of a perfectionist as well not really no um <laughs> just this is a struggle yeah. uh i think you know it was christmas time we would normally have family come over and visit us and things to do but uh, we didn't so anyway we're doing this and, and i kind of realized man this is uh gonna take us forever so let's let's get some painters in to do it and we, we went away for a couple of weeks on a road trip but uh it is a, it is a struggle because i i you know they did a really awesome job and we chose to kind of best painters we could find i had quotes from five or six of them and best reviews and everything like that um and i've still come back and i'm like oh this is and, and so lucy's like uh you know this is so good how amazing is this and everything and i'm like yeah it's really awesome but you know oh there's this little bit here or this bit here or and so for me it's always um i feel like i don't dwell on the successes or the past as much as i think about what's the next thing um mm-hmm. i don't know if you've ever watched a show west wing it was um mm-hmm. yeah it's an hbo uh, show from the late 90s and early 2000s and uh president bartlett he's uh played by michael sheen's brother i can't remember his actor's name but yeah uh he often ends each episode dealing with some sort of crisis and then he ends the episode saying what's next you know he doesn't really kind of dwell on the success that they've had if if, uh, he's always looking to the next thing and i feel like that's kind of me as well we painted the house and and and, uh my the first thing i said was not oh it looks so good it's like okay now we're going to do the bathroom or something (laughs) (laughs) that that kind of annoys uh lucy and um and I think people at work as well, where, uh, you know, I don't think I dwell so much on our successes. I just constantly think about what the next thing is to do. And I, I don't know why particularly. I think like one of the, one of the things that's always frustrated me about technology is um, just how kind of bad everything is. And you, you see this all the time whenever you see some like an old, older person interacting with software. Mm-hmm. And... I feel like you have so much empathy as a designer because you you can understand the whole process that went into ending up with something and the, the engineering effort and the design effort and then you see the end result which is in my case my mum struggling to do something basic mm-hmm. and i find her i find myself like sending her these ridiculous instructions like you know the other day in chrome she was trying to bookmark something and i was like oh like or like like printed or something like that and i was like okay so like click the three dots in the top right (laughs) and then like of course whatever website she's on also had three dot menu and i was like no no no, the vertical three dots like the ones that go like this so click the vertical three dots then click like more tools then it's just painful and so i struggle because it's like I understand the choices for the, the, in this case, the Google Chrome design team has made to sort of tuck everything away. Mm. But I also understand that sort of, it's just, yeah. So I see, I see a lot of frustration in software and I kind of feel like, man, it should be better. And I feel like I, I should, you know, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. Yeah. Um, I was talking to Steve Krug who wrote, don't make me think the other week. And he mm-hmm. brought up exactly this point after 40 years of doing what he's doing, he still looks around and sees things and he's like, Oh man, why there's just so so many bad experience still around. But he understands, yeah. like you've said, just how hard it is to shape something that's actually great. Yeah, the classic thing I love is you know, mum always complains about um, apps being updated and like things changing. Mm. And of course, you know, everybody's always changing stuff. Like the Facebook apps always evolving, and Gmail and and so on. People, are, you know, Google's deprecating some service like 
I just had to, we use hangouts for mm-hmm. the last, I don't know, 15 years and they're getting rid of hangouts, uh, this year. And so I have to switch over to some other thing. So we switched over to WhatsApp, but of course, WhatsApp doesn't have uh, video calling on desktop mm-hmm. up until last couple of months ago. So I was like, okay, mum, hangouts is getting deprecated and you know, I don't have an iPhone, so we're going to have to use duo to do a video call, but then WhatsApp when I'm not on my desk, it's just stuffed, you know, and I just don't understand how, yeah, things are so bad, but then I also, yeah, get the whole how the sausage is made thing. So it's, it's a, it's a frustration, I guess. <laughs> and you've acknowledged that this plays out at work as well. And perhaps the team gets frustrated with you occasionally on this. Yeah. What do you do to try and manage this predisposition that you've got? Um, well, one of one of our values is if we do it, we nail it, which has been quite helpful because often I feel like in the past, before we had this value, we would take on something that we didn't have the confidence that we could nail it. Mm-hmm. And so I would rather not do something entirely than ship something that's kind of half-baked, uh, which has helped us kind of make hard trade-offs, which is, you know, well, maybe we should not do that yet because we don't have a full confidence in the feature or something like this. So that's been helpful. Um, uh, and then obviously just kind of providing some perspective to the team that one of the reasons that we, we win as a, as a product, as a company, and this goes for people choosing Dovetail over other tools, but also um, people choosing Dovetail as a place to work uh, in terms of our value proposition from employees is the quality bar is high and that's a that's a, a thing that people want to be associated with like they want to feel like they're doing really great work and and that the craft is valued uh whether that's an engineer writing code or whether that's a, a person in marketing or a graphic designer or something like this um so i think it's it's kind of tricky because people are drawn to the idea of sweating the details and polishing stuff and releasing things that they're proud of but the the trade-off is that it can be tough to to have um to sort of celebrate success and 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 be happy because you're always striving for perfection so i think that i'm probably a lot more patient now than i was a year ago uh one of the things that i find that's helpful for me is just remembering that uh you know brad and myself as founders have for most context out of anybody in the company because we've been doing it the longest Mm. and we also have the luxury of being able to sort of see what's going on from our our perspective um and personally i have a a, a quite a high level perspective because i also talk to investors a lot and sort of can compare us against other companies and and have drinks with other founders and so the thing is that not everybody's going to have that level of context and so you have to be patient it's not really anyone's fault right like mm. uh, you just have to build up this context and provide perspective and uh, hopefully you get the point to the point where the organization is consistently shipping really high quality stuff um mm. so yeah. i think patience patience is the key <laughs> yeah that's uh, often a lesson you can only learn through experience it sounds like you've come to some great insight there about yourself and how to adapt to make that better for the team that you've employed yeah yeah and you know when you're in a startup as well like you're hiring new new people all the time and and uh everybody's coming from a different background and a different kind of uh career path and they've worked in different cultures and different environments different set of principles Mm -hmm. so it takes some time for people to adjust 
it's not just simple stuff like you know um kind of fitting into the culture in a social sense and everything it's also how people work together and collaborate that can be quite different if you've come from um like a, a software company like Atlassian versus mm. you've come from a, a a larger more established business or agency or consulting firm so mm. I think just appreciating that everybody has some time to to adapt and um that when you're hiring as fast as we are the average tenure is something like six months so it's difficult to you know and, and ensure that we're always crushing it all the time on schedule because it's just too much expectation for the team uh, we're hiring around one person a fortnight at the moment so uh you know that's that's the, the amount of context that people have um, our retention rate is 100 percent, so we haven't had anybody uh, leave so yeah no that's something to be really proud of <laughs> and this might this might sound a little crazy this far into the conversation but dovetail's a bit famous in the uxr community but there might be some people that are listening that haven't heard about it yet just for those people what is dovetail yeah f- famous that's a word that i never thought that we would uh, be associated with but that's cool um <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so basically we are a, a, a software platform, a collaborative software platform for people who do research. And that sounds quite vague, but um, we're basically a way for people to organize unstructured data, to make sense of it through analysis and to store their insights, retrieve insights uh, through search and discovery mm-hmm. and collaborate across teams, across departments. So it's you know, ideal customer for us is sort of like a, a, a sort of a medium to large SaaS business that has multiple products and multiple teams doing research. Um, so for instance, we have, you know, Shopify as a customer, GitLab, Square, uh, VMware. We also have a lot of what I would call, you know, non-software kind of, uh, what's it called? Digital transformation type mm-hmm. companies. So uh, Volkswagen and Porsche, uh, we have you know, banks and insurance companies like Unica and Austria, uh, CBA. So basically, you know, the product is not like a lot of research software is focused on the collection of data. So you've got survey tools, you have usability testing software, you have NPS type things like voice at a customer or CX. Uh, we don't really care how you collect this data, this unstructured data, but we, we help you kind of make sense of it through uh, transcription, tagging tools and, and mm. video type stuff and then and then once you've made sense of it come up with some insights hopefully you store them and present them through dovetail and we can uh, get rid of powerpoints and pdfs and long form reports that people don't read so um, that's kind of the the future at least for us is kind of building out this rich collaborative dynamic research report mm. that's not not a kind of dusty thing uh, and so yeah, that's a very long-winded. One, one thing I hate is like elevator pitches or even the concept of an elevator pitch because businesses are very complicated mm. <laughs> and uh, being able to describe your business in like one sentence is just so vague. Um, I, I really struggle with that. Otherwise, or you, re, you resort to something stupid like with the Uber for research, which of course doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, you end up, if you ask me what we do, it's, it's a long-winded answer. And uh, thankfully though, if people are in the space they kind of get it you're like oh it's a research mm. repository product they get it but if i'm trying to describe it to anybody who's not in 
for design or research community it ends up being this like super long mm-hmm. long-winded answer well, well, <laughs> well i'm sure that most uh, most of the people listening to this will get it so it's great to have that description from you benjamin before we get into the future for dovetail take me back to the beginning so you joined Atlassian as a product designer in 2013, and by December mm-hmm. 2016, you were promoted to lead designer. Then yeah. about six months later, you said goodbye to what seems mm-hmm. like a great job that also had stock options to work full-time on your new startup at that time, Dovetail. What did mum think about that decision? <laughs> this was the second uh decision that she was very unhappy with <laughs> uh it's so funny you know um we we really struggle with even even hiring today um people leaving in the eyes of their parents leaving these kind of really um comfortable jobs that almost sound too good to be true and of course the thing is with Atlassian, right you've you it's it's a pretty sweet gig like i took my from, from their perspective I, I took my mum through the office a few times and and she's like wow you can like magnums and they're on tap basically you've got free beer you've got you know um you get to rock up to work in, a, in shorts and a t-shirt and <laughs> and then on top of all of this you're paid really well and you have stock options and you know, why would you ever leave right because from their point of view uh they're used to working for one company for a long time so uh makes sense but um yeah so in my case i i started as a designer and i started working on jira and uh that was cool you know some pretty hard challenges with uh jira i was working on the kanban boards which used to be called uh green hopper and then it was renamed to jira software jira agile sorry then jira software uh so i was working on a green hopper it's a small team 12 of us or so um the design team for jira was only maybe six people um and trucked away on that then i moved on to some onboarding stuff after a year or so working on the growth team then i was fortunate to be part of this vision project um and so i just kind of moved around a bit working on various parts of atlassian and so the thing is that like atlassian changed a lot while i was there it went through a lot of growth from 2013 like you understand that the, the, the company was 500 people when i started the design team was 17 and mm-hmm. when i left the company was 1500 2000 the design team was well over 100 people mm-hmm. and so you went through a lot of growth obviously went from private company to public company and um and so i was just kind of you know i wanted to get back on the tools and and kind of make more stuff and and i saw this opportunity uh to build a product for researchers because i'd been sort of following this journey uh with design tooling for, as a designer so i you know used photoshop originally well before that dreamweaver and flash and stuff <laughs> and uh you know we were using photoshop to make design uh, uh mock-ups and uh, atomic design kind of design systems was emerging obviously photoshop wasn't really designed for that mm-hmm. then you had sketch kind of come on the scene as like a purpose-built vector editor for for ui design specifically obviously they launched symbols and libraries to do uh, design systems and then figma and so i sort of saw firsthand and experienced at firsthand what software like purpose-built design software could look like mm-hmm. And as Atlassian hired researchers, I, I realized that these uh, they were essentially using uh, you know uh, a flexible tool for everything. 
So nothing that they were using for analysis was built for them. So spreadsheets, Google Docs, Confluence, uh, and they're just trying to bend it in a way that worked for them. And a lot of the time it was just sticky notes on a whiteboard. So I thought, man, this must be something we could do for researchers. Um, so I had so a that, was the hunch. that was the hunch. That was the you hunch. Observed, you observed them using and struggling with the software. Yeah, and like in, it's a one particular moment uh, where we were, I was doing this project with a researcher and it was called um, Engaging First Impressions. And it was about the onboarding experience for Jira and Confluence in the first seven days. We wanted to understand why people tried the product mm. and, uh, and didn't convert, right? So every company has this problem. Uh, so we did a diary study and uh, the researcher that I was working with, she ran this diary study through a combination of Tumblr blogs and Tumblr diaries, and then also using Google Docs and spreadsheets, and then uh, finally printing out all of the entries and cutting them up in pieces of paper and putting them on a whiteboard. The whole thing took maybe three months to mm. um, kind of make sense of. And I saw this and I immediately latched on to the tumblr part where she so she, she basically created a, a a separate tumblr blog for each participant mm. gave them the username and password and said log into this and write your diary entry as a new blog each day and so i was like man this, this sucks like there's got to be a better way to do diary studies and of course i found dscout and uh back then they were you know doing a lot of video stuff um and i was like well what if what if you can't do video uh sms email I'd also gone to this conference where Fisher Paykel were talking about um, a, an interceptive texting research study that they had run in China on how people use their dishwashers in small apartments. Mm -hmm. So I got thinking, I was like, man, maybe I could do something where it's like, we'll send some text messages and emails on a schedule over a week. We can do this kind of longitudinal study. It's a bit like a survey tool. Uh, so I built that and then got a few paying customers um, and I did this while I was at Atlassian on the weekend and on weeknights uh, for six months. It, you know, it got a little bit of traction, but it wasn't really um, wasn't really going anywhere. Certainly not lucrative enough for me to consider leaving Atlassian to work on. Mm -hmm. And but I did notice when I talked to customers that they would. Uh, well, we also saw this in the in the in the. Uh, revenue <laughs> is that people would buy it they'd do their study and then they'd export their data and, and cancel and so <laughs> which, I is, a I like, which is a nightmare from a product entrepreneurship point of view that's not what yeah well there was definitely no SaaS business there um <laughs> with that you know 100 percent churn so uh i talked to them and i was like what are you doing with the data when you export it and then they showed me, you know, well, we're doing all this analysis. It's all different. You know, some people are doing it on a spreadsheet. Some people are doing it on a whiteboard, uh, even in a, a physical kind of journal, just like jotting down annotations and notes. Mm. So I thought, all right, maybe analysis is kind of more interesting. So then I went deep into that space, looked at academic software like Envivo, MaxQDA, Atlas TI, realized that there was an opportunity here to sort of disrupt those by building a cloud collaborative product that was priced more affordably and then convinced uh brad my co-founder uh about the idea over a few months and then finally uh left atlassian to build that so that was kind of the journey it did take a long time um though <laughs> so there's a few things in there that i want to go into starting off with how did it feel 
on the day that you left Atlassian? <laughs> um, look, I, yeah, Atlassian was very good to me, uh, and it's a, it's a very good company. Um, and so I took the sabbatical for three months, and I did my flying, and I wanted to think about, you know, I talked to a few people, and they were like, "Look, you can go on the startup path, and it's going to be hard." and uh you're probably not gonna be successful and i was like okay that's cool and i always had this itch to scratch with building a startup and i um i also should mention that i talked to mike and scott um before i took the sabbatical so Mm -hmm. i had a one-on-one with each of them and talked about what i wanted to do talked about this product and things like this and uh you know mike was like well you know it's 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 really hard building a company and and uh um you know, here's all the reasons why it's going to be difficult. And he didn't really try and sell me on staying at Atlassian. These are the but, founders of uh, Atlassian too, right? For people that don't know who yeah, Mike Scott are. Yeah, yeah, Mike. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mike Hannibrooks and Scott Farquhar. And so, you know, we talked about that for kind of an hour and a half. And, and he was like, you know, like uh, at the end of the day, it's it's your choice. And if, uh, But these are kind of, it's a very different kind of uh, landscape to start a company now than it was when they started Atlassian. Mm. And... Uh, I talked to him and then I decided I'd take three months off, think about things. And then I came back to Atlassian after three months off and I'd been chipping away on Dovetail and I was like, look, you know, um, I am passionate about this thing. I really need to go and do this. And uh, so, yeah, I decided to to leave, put in my notice. And then I I spent four weeks uh, talking to everybody and having conversations and doing kind of a brain dump Mm -hmm. and then um, wrapped up. So the plan was you know like we were going to spend a year we gave ourselves a year uh so we kind of worked out how much we'd need to spend in the 12 months to live and then brad and i put some money in a bank account and we said this is how much money we have Mm -hmm. if that runs out we're going to call it quits and we're going to go back to uh in his case he would have gone back to atlassian i may have um and you know we'll just give it a go and so that was kind of the the mentality um so it was very much yeah. calculated risk. Yeah, definitely. And of course, you know, like you walk out and if you quit, then your equity goes. And so obviously I left a fair amount of money on the table, but I also felt like the timing was good. You have to kind of consider these things like, you know, we didn't, we're in our late 20s. We didn't have any kids. We mm. were kind of happy to stay in Sydney for a while. Uh, we felt like we had a good amount of experience from all the things we'd learned at Atlassian. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it felt like a good time to try. Um, so it was a very calculated risk and if it wasn't going to work out, I think we would be at peace with that. Uh, but I definitely felt like I had to scratch that itch. Um, I, and I'm pleased that I did it then and didn't do it earlier because if I'd done it earlier, I wouldn't have had all of the, uh, knowledge that I built up from Atlassian things Mm -hmm. I'd learned. So now that you've done it, have there been any moments that you've, doubted yourself or the idea <laughs> uh all the time i think you mm. know um uh, as a founder i think you have you fear you have a lot of responsibility i feel because uh, i've talked about this in the past but one of the problems or the anxiety that you develop is that you you kind of sell this dream right and it's it's it is a dream you have a bit of evidence but attraction you have some customers you have a product but what you're selling is kind of this well we'll we'll be like the next atlassian or something like that of course that's what the investors want to hear they want to get a big return 
there's also what employees want to hear. Um, they don't want to uh, leave just like I wanted to leave Atlassian. It was a calculated risk. They don't want to leave a company like that or, or whatever they are, wherever, whatever they're doing at the moment mm-hmm. um, without believing that this could be uh, a good option long-term. So you have these expectations, I guess, from the team uh, or the people you've convinced to join you from investors, also from friends and family. You know, you, you've kind of taken this risk on, made this uh, decision that's kind of, uh, and in the first couple of years, like we were really, I don't know, just heads down trying to prove ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, you feel that weight all the time. And of course, if things don't go that well, then you have a lot of self-doubt. And the thing that I kind of helps me now is that I feel like we've built up a team of people that are pretty good at what they do and mm. hire people that are smarter than you. And then you kind of, uh, de-risks the whole business right so i think that um definitely have a lot of self-doubt and then in the product i mean you know like i think brad and i are pretty surprised at how uh popular it's been and how much people like it we are our own biggest critics i guess hmm. but um uh well we, we just kind of started it out and we were like well let's build this kind of editor that that you can tag you can select the text and you can tag it. <laughs> it works um, really well for doing that, by the way. <laughs> you know yeah, that and one. so that's right. And so you know how like products they have a few kind of uh, cornerstone features that I guess are the are the things that just like for Jira, it's the workflow uh, management stuff, mm-hmm. um, and and that's the kind of secret sauce that has to work really well. But a, a great product has a few of these, you know. Um, and I feel like we we kind of got that first one really right. And then we did the video stuff and that's been good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still feel like we have a couple more of these kind of really wow things to build. Um, so yeah, I definitely have like, uh, you know, self-doubt kind of confidence, anxiety type problems, but um, you just have to reassure yourself that we're just going to take it one thing at a time and just try and make a lot of good decisions one after the other. Mm. That's with the information you have. So. Yeah, I think Seth Godin calls it dancing with fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. It's, uh, you know, and there's all sorts of stuff you can do, do to de-risk it. Like, um, you know, you can hire great people, obviously. You can mm. uh, have a bit of money in the bank by doing some venture capital. There's all sorts of stuff you can do. So it's just a matter of kind of just going through and de-risking stuff and trying to um yeah believe a lot of it's naivety too (laughs) well you need a healthy dose of that otherwise anyone looking at starting a company would wouldn't uh because the reality is often not as glamorous as the the stories that we read about in the media yeah absolutely i mean nothing is an overnight success one thing that i like doing is uh using the wayback machine to go and look at old um websites of successful companies before they were successful so i go mm-hmm. back and look at like slack when it was a gaming company and like intercom and how they had like a really bad website when they started out and i look at um atlassian's old website and a lot of people don't realize this thing takes it takes ages you know it takes a long time um to really become an overnight success there's a lot of groundwork that has to go into it beforehand mm. uh, we, we've been you know we've been going now for almost four years and i feel like we're uh, just recently kind of at an inflection point where we're starting to to you know be reasonably successful and it's kind of taken that much time to to get there 
Yeah, one of the things I really like about the Dovetail story is that you mentioned this earlier that you bootstrapped to business profitability mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you accepted outside investment. Was that a conscious decision that you made? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were originally not going to take any VC money. Um, so we, we wanted to build a, uh, I call it a happy, healthy, crunchy company. Uh, so <laughs> similar to Basecamp, uh, similar to Buffer perhaps, mm-hmm. um, Zapier, you know, just kind of like a company that is kind of got all this foundational stuff it's just sort of trucking along it's got a good model it's you know pretty patient mm. uh vc backed companies are stressful because obviously the the, the uh, desire is to grow quickly uh, but you can also kind of just grow slowly and you'll get there eventually hopefully so originally the uh, the goal was brad and i were going to try and make 120 grand um and that would pay our sort of $60,000 each, which we cover our rent and uh, some food and stuff. <laughs> and for, so we got there. But the, the problem is that, you know, uh, you can kind of survive as a two-person company for a while. But a few things happen. You, you get a bit bored of one another. You get kind of sick of one another. Mm. You, you were you working from each other's kitchens, weren't you? We were, yes. Yeah. So we started taking like Wednesdays off to be apart, a bit of focus time. <laughs> um, you also miss like a lot of the cultural things of having a team, mm-hmm. Friday drinks, uh, team lunches, just people to hang out with. Um, it's quite alienating, isolating. Uh, like for me, at least my whole network in Sydney was Atlassian because I'd moved here for the job. So uh, we, we would make a, a point of organizing a breakfast each month with our uh, friends at Atlassian just to stay in touch and if we didn't do that people would just kind of forget about us I suppose so mm-hmm. um, yeah so we wanted to get to 120 grand and the thing is as we got there and then we had like I don't know 100 customers or something and you realize that with two people you know you can't take a holiday at the same time you Brad as the only kind of real engineer was the one who was always on call 24 mm. seven. And because all these customers were, were overseas, he was getting woken up at three, four o'clock in the morning. Um, we had support to deal with, you know, and we kind of realized that we just weren't really providing a good experience for those 100 customers because it was just the two of us. And, and it, if we wanted to provide a better experience, we would need to spend more time on support and everything like this and less time building new features. And so that kind of limits your ambition Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd hit we'd hit that goal and so we were like well what are we going to do like it's just you know we're like 20 I don't know how old I was 28 or something 29 and so it's like okay this is what do we do now like is this the rest of our life we just keep growing revenue take home a bigger sort of share mm-hmm. um, so it can actually be quite stressful doing this bootstrap company so we decided to hire um, uh, an engineer Chris who was our first hire mm-hmm. and he joined back in this is sort of 2018 I guess is this Chris Morgan and, no this is Chris Manoeuvrier uh-huh. uh, Morgs, Morgs joined us about just over six months ago mm-hmm. um, so yes yeah, so we hired Chris and uh, we gave him the 120 grand instead of uh, paying ourselves a salary <laughs> and this is this is after how long had it taken you to get to this 120 grand uh, it took about a year of not paying year. yourself, right? This is like not paying yourself, right. working in each other's kitchens. 
yes, none of the perks right. that you had at Alassian. Just, just spending our savings. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So it took about a year and it was actually quite relaxing. You know, it was quite nice. We just kind of chipped away. I, I was living in Kirribilli. So I would just go up and meet at the cafes at Kirribilli there by the bridge. And it was nice and sunny and just kind of enjoying sitting. Of course, we worked on whatever schedule we wanted to. We didn't have any meetings. That was great. You know, <laughs> literally no manager, no meetings, no performance reviews, nothing like that. Just kind of chill, uh, really just focused on building the product. And our velocity was really good. We were shipping, you know, one one feature a week at least. Um, so it was quite satisfying uh but we hired chris and we were like okay let's let's do this and then we still didn't know if we wanted to take any vc money or not but by this point uh some venture capital investors had started reaching out and we started chatting to them um and uh we got to sort of would have been june or july or august or something 2019 mm. and we were sitting on $400,000 a year or something like that. Yeah, so we were chilling, kind of profitable, uh, just the three of us. But again, it was a bit stressful because we had all these customers. A lot of them were big companies that were trusting us with their data that uh, is really their customers' data, the research participants. And we were all doing it all from Sydney and we were still missing the kind of office, the culture, the vibe and stuff. Still just three of us. We were actually working out of fish burners for a little bit in um in sydney is a co-working space um and so like we hired a couple of people and one of the problems was that we really really struggled to hire mm-hmm. because um like if it's risky joining a startup it's even riskier joining a startup that doesn't have any money in the bank <laughs> you don't tell people so, yeah. that though right that's not part of the dream that oh. you sell um, well, we're, you know, we try and be really honest. And so we, we told, yeah, we were like, you know, guys, we have about a hundred thousand bucks in the bank and we make like $400,000 a year. So if we hire you, you know, we'll be, um, uh, we'll be burning money again. So we would have been another sort of six months until we're profitable or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not quite a great story. And then the other problem is that there's no validation other than the only validation we had was, uh, our customers. So in terms of pitching somebody to join this company, there um they didn't you know there's no kind of litmus test i guess Mm. other than the customers we had and especially for someone who doesn't understand research and design as in like an engineer uh, you can't like the product sort of what's the point like how does this work why are people going to pay for this you know it doesn't quite you can't really pitch the product so we realized that we needed to grow the team and it was pretty stressful just being three of us and we were struggling to hire so uh to, to essentially decided to, to do the best by the customers and just to make sure that we could be sustainable uh we thought we would de-risk it by raising some money so we um talked to a few vc uh, firms and, and blackbird ended up being the lead in the round and that 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 was actually like september 2019 and then we didn't announce it for a few months mm. um so and what was it about blackbird why blackbird and why not the other investors that had approached you in the past oh uh, it's a combination of things um you know blackbird obviously have a great reputation in australia and slowly in new zealand for being very founder friendly which is a great aspect um we were very honest with them about uh, so our partner at Blackbird's a guy called Nick Crocker. We he came up and had lunch with us. He's in Melbourne, and uh, we were extremely honest about 
what we wanted to do with the business you know we we didn't want to give away lots of equity we wanted to retain control of the board of a majority shareholder vote we were basically going to do it around on our terms and if 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 uh, the vc didn't like that then they're not going to get in and that was mm-hmm. just it and um you know a couple of other firms were like well you know we have minimum ownership thresholds and so you're going to have to give us more of your company and we were like, well, stuff you then. So we said no to them. <laughs> but uh, Blackbird was, you know, I think they kind of saw because there's more about betting on founders rather than like their philosophy is basically if you have good founders, then you'll have a good business. And even if the business isn't perfect at the time, the hope is that the founders can get it there. So we were just upfront about the challenges we had, talked through what we were going to do to solve them. Um, and, and I guess they just liked us. And so we kind of got along. And I think there was a philosophical alignment. Yeah. And how has it changed the business since taking on that funding, you know, deploying that capital? What what has it done for Dovetail? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So somebody asked me this the other day. They were like, do you think you'd get where you are now without taking the VC money? And I don't think so because we've spent quite a bit of capital on like our office, for example, which is this nice uh, place in, in Surrey Hills. Uh, we could, we just wouldn't have had enough capital in the bank to afford that. So we'd still yeah. probably be working at a co-working space. Um, it makes a big difference. Like I feel like your office is kind of your sort of manifestation of the culture. Mm-hmm. And when people walk through the door and they kind of see the vibe, they see the design and the uh, illustrated this awesome mural that's on the wall. It just makes it so much more exciting for them to uh, consider joining Dovetail. So I think that our hiring wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as it is at the moment if it weren't for the um, funding obviously the the validation and everything like this so it certainly helped us become a more attractive place to work and then the validation has i think helped us win some enterprise customers and Mm -hmm. and kind of just been a bit more i guess like you know you have to think about like customer confidence and like uh, you there's all sorts of stuff you can do to try and build that and having having a couple of news articles and stuff that we can share well, at least back then uh was was helpful to build some confidence mm. um so i think that we may have been able to get to where we are now but it would have taken a lot longer and it would have been a lot riskier because brad and i would have been literally uh putting our own money in right whereas this way we sell a wee bit of the business we get a bunch of cash kind of de-risks it for us and uh, we can use that but we um yeah and it's like deploying capital is kind of tricky actually like we don't we you know make a reasonable amount of money off of the product and so we're not that far off profitable uh month to month so we need to figure out well how do we kind of smartly spend this money to grow uh which is a pretty difficult challenge actually Mm. (laughs) And, and you mentioned before that there are strings attached to outside money what strings are attached to the money that you've raised what do you need to demonstrate to investors and how is that shaping the decisions that you're making at dovetail yeah it's a good question we so like literally we don't have any strings attached you know we managed to get some really good uh really good terms great economics and so um that's brad and i still have kind of full control of the company so that's really good mm-hmm. um but i think that it's more of like an, an intrinsic expectation or like 
I wouldn't call it pressure, not at all, but just like this feeling that, you know, we've got to kind of grow at a certain rate and um, don't want to let people down, want to deliver on what we said. Maybe it's more about that. Like we kind of, I talked earlier about sort of selling this dream and you obviously paint a vision when you go raise money, right? You sort of yeah. tell a story. You, you, I think of raising money as a narrative. You basically build your build the story, build the narrative, and then you find evidence to support the narrative. A lot of companies go evidence first where they just deliver a bunch of metrics uh, without telling the story around the metrics. So um, for us, you know, we have, we, I told this narrative uh, and then um, I feel like we need to deliver on that. Otherwise mm-hmm. we're sort of going back on our words. So that's the sort of uh, pressure, I guess, that, that I place on myself, but it's not like, I think there's this misconception that in the early stage uh, investors are trying to control the company or set the direction or anything like that. Honestly, that's the worst thing they could do because the founders have the most amount of context and the most amount of skill and experience to actually (laughs) execute on everything. So if the investors are even getting involved at that degree, it, it doesn't help. So they're kind of there as advisors and connectors, you know, if we want. If we want a connection to somebody, uh, we can reach out to them and see if they have an intro or something they can do. It sounds like you've found some great investors there to help take Dovetail to the next level. Yeah, we're very fortunate, I think. Um, We're also quite intentional about choosing an Australian lead for our first round. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't want to uh, go down the route of getting an American investor from day one as our lead investor. And I think that that's, again baby steps calculated risk we didn't want to go you know a lot of a lot of people will go and they'll raise a heap of money from an american investor off of not very much and i think it just puts so much pressure on you um mm-hmm. so we we kind of intentionally chose uh australian lead investor we liked yeah mm. it's cliched but the most valuable resource we all have is time And I imagine when you're the CEO of a fast-growing product company, that might feel like it's an exceedingly short supply. What things at Dovetail do you do you actually focus most of your time on? Um, Yeah. So, yes, uh, time is in short supply. Um, And we're running out of time on this uh, interview. So (laughs) yeah. so I have this friend who's a CEO of a 150-person company, and uh, you know they've had a really interesting journey to get to where they're at. Um, and he said to me the other day, he's like, "Man, you know, scaling a company, as in like the culture, the team, the organization, is way harder than finding product market fit, like getting to your first million dollars in revenue." And I, I, I agree with that. Like, I think that a lot of my time now is spent on th- trying to think about how do we steer the company in terms of its culture, the values, the principles that we have, and um, how do we, how do I provide as much perspective and context as I can so that everybody can make their own good decisions mm. uh, without being, without me being the bottleneck. So, um, I delegate a lot of things like day-to-day stuff and I've been doing more and more of that where we have now a, uh, a really great head of product uh, who, who came from safety culture, mm-hmm. um, Brian. And then we also just hired a, a head of marketing, uh, Susan, who is from booking.com. And uh, 
So I've got two quite experienced uh, people running product and marketing, which means that a lot of the day-to-day stuff and how do they actually build out their team and the strategy is kind of, uh, that's what they're working on. Mm-hmm. So then I can think more about, well, how do we set a longer term vision and how, what sort of things do I need to say and do to shape the culture um, especially when you have new people joining all the time you know um, so a lot of it's kind of guidance and just thoughtfully thinking about how do we use events like all hands meetings um, you know my one-on-ones with my direct reports and try and help them be better and coach them um, yeah so mm-hmm. it's, it's probably more thoughtful like a lot of deep thought on on sort of the business as a whole uh and less kind of functional work like i'm mm. not designing and you know running marketing campaigns or anything yeah yeah i think you use an analogy in something i was watching that you talked uh, talked to before which was moving from a pirate ship to the navy oh, yeah. becoming the navy i'm not sure who actually originally came up with that analogy but i thought that was a brilliant analogy what 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 yeah. is it what is that analogy what does that represent uh, yes, yeah, so it was Reid Hoffman mm. who wrote a LinkedIn article about this for Uber when Uber was uh, going through its turmoils with um, Travis as the CEO, <laughs> and um, and uh, they were trying to reinvent themselves. And uh, Reid was talking about how they need to they need to transition from being a a pirate ship to being kind of this navy, which is more sort of sophisticated and. Mm. Um, has like multiple fleets with their own kind of commanders and and can operate um effectively at scale uh which means having a shared kind of culture and understanding of what's right and what's wrong and sort of this sort of stuff so as well as things like a chain of command and all that sort of stuff but yeah like i think one way to think about it is that you have to kind of design the organization like i had this uh one belief that i had that's changed is that the if you just hire great people people that you get along with Mm -hmm. then the culture will be kind of just self-developing um and that is not true at all you can have you can have awesome people but uh you still need to kind of shape the culture intentionally Mm -hmm. um so a lot of what i what i do is kind of observing and then also calling things out where it's like hey this is kind of a bit weird or um, you know, reinforcing saying this is actually a good example, and, and trying to say like we should do more of this kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I think that being intentional about shaping the culture and design, yeah, really designing the culture, looking for problems, solving them, uh, is how you can scale an organization and do it where you're not the bottleneck. Like if I'm constantly running around having to make decisions on everything, then that's I haven't done a very good job. So empowering people to make their own decisions and and make the decisions that are going to be uh, hopefully better than even my decision because they have more context and and uh, are equipped with the knowledge to do that so mm. i think that's where the pirate ship to navy thing is because uh, pirate ships you know there's kind of no chain of command there's kind of just a bunch of a sh- it's, a, it's a small team that's got a shared culture shared understanding uh the incentives are really clear um whereas a navy is quite a different outfit um and uh, so this other article that I read uh, is about how, like, you don't want to go full Navy because then you end up being, like, quite bureaucratic. So what you want, ideally, is pirates in the Navy. So you have these sort of small 
teams that have their own kind of cultures and can move quickly while still operating within the broader strategy mm-hmm. of the company. And so I think that, you know, I don't know much about Google's internal culture, but from the outside, it seems like that's kind of what they do. They sort of have a lot of small teams that are often sometimes competing with one another, but they're all sort of trying to move quickly and do a lot of things while operating in the broader sort of culture and value system of, of Google. Mm. Just being mindful of time and bringing us down to the close, just a couple of final questions for you, Benjamin. What are you not willing to compromise on as you build Dovetail? <laughs> Man, hard question. Um, not willing to compromise on. I think bad, like probably bad culture fit people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that this is a, yeah, like I, I think, again, this is kind of one of those things that I've probably learned over the past 12 months or so. I think a, a a hire that is not a great culture fit can have this magnitude kind of effect where they just really um, slow the company down and, and, and piss everybody off and kind of everybody's talking about it. And it, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort as a manager. And it's like, you know, you can have somebody who's extremely skilled. Mm. It's kind of like, I don't know if you saw this thing that Lassian came out with a couple of years ago, but there's no assholes rule. <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's sort of, I didn't realize, I think like you can have somebody who's really skilled, but is not a good culture fit. And it just really um, can yeah, be toxic. And, mm. and that's kind of one thing that I just don't feel like we're going to compromise on or tolerate. Um it's just yeah it just creates this real unhappiness mm-hmm. which <laughs> is amazing because it's like one person right but yeah and definitely that's not what you need when you're trying to move at speed and scale so yeah it's really no, interesting so to hear like, you say that yeah and i think that you know culture fit is kind of like a bit of a it's not a great term because it implies that you you have an existing culture that's mm-hmm. never going to evolve and everybody mm-hmm. has to fit into it which is not true right you have uh, so you know we talk about it kind of more as like culture ad um we have uh, i think all the recent new hires we've made are just amazing and they're, they're coming in and they're really adding to the culture and it's actually quite cool so we're sort of at this inflection point now where people are starting to um kind of establish groups where they're playing like dungeons and dragons or like you know going <laughs> uh hi- hiking together whereas before with when we were just 10 or 12 people you didn't really have a critical mass. It was either everybody went to do this activity together, had lunch together, or, or nobody did. And so now we've got almost 30 people. It's kind of like, okay, this, uh, if, you know, people have shared hobbies. <laughs> um, but I think that, uh, yeah, you want people who add to the culture and have the right kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. And that is pretty vague. It can cross all sorts of different things, whether how they communicate with other people, if they take feedback on board, how do they uh, collaborate their working style um, and just their kind of attitude like you have like startups are really difficult and mm-hmm. if you're negative or pessimistic it, it's really tough because there are a hundred problems at any one time that you can point out but that's always the case and so if you're constantly just pointing out the problems then it's really um, really tough to kind of keep people motivated so i think that you sometimes just have to almost be uh naively positive and optimistic uh even in the face of um yeah it's, it's this interesting thing it's called this 
there's this article on this by my uh, my coach Ed Batista. It's called "The Cognitive Dissonance of a CEO," and it's a bit like this dancing. Um, what was it dancing with the dancing with the fair? Yeah, dancing, dancing with, with the fair. Yeah, it's a bit like that where you kind of uh, you know if you're on the ground at a startup, you've got you, you can see all the problems, but somehow you still have to remain optimistic and positive mm-hmm. uh in in spite of all of that and and, and that's a, it's a hard thing for people to do cognitively um but uh necessary and so i think that that's that's difficult to get right mm. um, it might have been ryan holiday or someone else that i was reading recently and the notion that that they, they were speaking of there was don't wish for a life with no problems wish for a life with better problems and I think that's one of the things with, with businesses, there are always going to be problems and in life in general. But if you get caught up in those and dwell on them and let that seep out in negative uh, toxic energy into other people, that's, uh, that's when you're sort of, you need to, you might need to leave that company. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And mm. it's all about being pragmatic, right? Like um, you're not trying to put out all of the fires. <laughs> Everything's always on fire. It's just how, how big is the fire? And then you kind of turn your hose towards <laughs> that fire. And then there's another smaller fire. That's kind of a grass fire. You don't really worry about that as much until it gets out of control. So <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the approach, you know, it's, 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 nothing's ever going to be perfect, which is hard if you're a perfectionist, but I think that just learning to let things go and, and actually not, not try and solve everything at once as well as, as a good, uh, mindset. So what's in store for Dovetail? Um, yeah, well, a lot. So, so we've got a lot going on at the moment, actually. Um, we are growing uh, the team quite a lot. We're running out of office space, so we're working on expanding the office. Um, and don't get me started on commercial leases and office <laughs> expansion stuff. It's uh, a pain in the ass. Surely there should be um, some opportunities coming up with everyone vacating CBDs. Yeah, well, we want to stay where we are, but we want to expand into the downstairs part of our building. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's happening. But we product side, we're working on a whole heap of really big things at the moment, which is, is kind of in hindsight, a bit of a mistake. Um, uh, I feel like even though I'm aware of this, that you shouldn't just couple massive projects together uh, and you should instead break it down and ship iteratively, we still sometimes end up in the state where we have all these big projects so we're trying to wrap all this stuff up at the end of this month and and have a whole bunch of stuff to release Mm. but in terms of the company you know we probably want to be 40 45 people by the end of this year um really trying to grow obviously the product team uh we need more engineers more stuff to do Mm. but um our marketing and go to market side is is a little kind of under um under under loved and so we're growing our, our marketing team uh, as well this year and our, our, reven- our new revenue team, which is kind of, uh, it's not really sales, it's more like procurement assistance and customer success type stuff. So that's all sort of happening. And then the product, um, it's going through quite a big evolution where we are, you know, we've done this analysis thing now for three or four years. Mm-hmm. We launched a video stuff and, and, you know, it's a pretty good tool for tagging and for a researcher to kind of use as, as their sort of productivity tool uh, where we see the the next big opportunity is this uh, research repository space so um, really changing the way that people uh, stakeholders consume research insights so rather than stuff being pushed out to stakeholders through uh, powerpoint presentations and like uh, synchronous meetings 
and reports that are really long and, and, and wordy, um, we want to change that whole kind of interaction pattern and make it instead of a self-service uh, pool kind of model where a product manager or an executive or a designer or a, a salesperson can just log into Dovetail and search for what they want mm-hmm. and pull the, pull the insights uh, out of the research rather than uh, the research team having to push it to them. So that's kind of our big thing that we're working on. It's, if you can imagine like an internal YouTube or an internal Pinterest for your research data mm-hmm. where you can just go in there, browse around, save stuff to playlists or like things, put them on boards and share it. That's the sort of approach that we're taking. So a much more collaborative consumer kind of focused uh product and so we've got a lot of work happening at the moment to reposition the product to say analysis is one tent peg and this repository stuff is another um but uh yeah that's kind of our big thing it sounds really exciting and definitely something that's really needed from the researchers that i speak to so thanks benjamin it's been a really great conversation about product and entrepreneurship today thanks for so generously sharing your stories and your insights no worries, Brendan. Hopefully it was uh, somehow somewhat cohesive. <laughs> oh, look, I'm sure no doubt that people listening to today's episode will have taken something away from them. And I wish you all the very best with the, the future for Dovetail. It does sound really, really exciting. Awesome. Thanks, Brendan. For people, Benjamin, that want to find out more about you and Dovetail, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, you can go to our website, I suppose, um, dovetailapp.com. Uh, unfortunately we don't have the uh, dovetail.com domain name yet but uh, yeah or just google us and uh, find us on LinkedIn I guess we have a blog where we you know our content team works really hard to produce good content Mm -hmm. Um, so feel free to check that out it's called Method and Madness but uh, yeah it is really good content Sean's doing a great job yeah hopefully we we've got some pretty cool stuff lined up for this year as well so I'm looking forward to it Great. Thanks, Benjamin. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here also. Everything that we've covered will be in today's show notes, including where you can find Benjamin and Dovetail and the Dovetail blog. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in design, UX and product, don't forget to leave us a review and to subscribe. And until next time, keep being brave.